So, Mayo, we're recording this on Thursday morning. It's about 9 a.m. Eastern time. And by the time most people are listening to this, barring any last-minute developments, the Apple Watch Series 9 and Apple Watch Ultra 2 will be gone from Apple's website. You could say the clock is literally ticking. The most accurate timepiece in the world. Down to 50 milliseconds, this watch is about to be banned. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. So this this starts years ago. Apple's long-running patent dispute with the medical device company Massimo. And they've been kind of battling it out in multiple different court cases with Massimo arguing that Apple infringes on some of its patents related to blood oxygen technology. And of course, the Apple Watch added blood oxygen features with the Series 6 in 2020. So this has been going on for a while. And it's kind of culminated in this ruling from the International Trade Commission that was first handed down in January, saying that Apple did indeed infringe on two of Massimo's patents, covering five different instances of patent infringement. So that was January. And then in October, the ITC upheld its decision and basically kicked the can to the Biden administration, starting the clock on a 60-day presidential review period during which the Biden administration can step in and veto the ITC's decision. But so far, again, it's Thursday, December 21st. The Biden administration has opted not to do that. And their deadline for doing that would be December 25th. So Merry Christmas to Apple. So that kind of leaves us where we are right now. Apple will remove the Series 9 and the Ultra 2 from its website today at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and from its retail stores at the end of the day on December 24th. And, and this is only in the US? Only in the US, correct, yeah. Europeans and other countries, the watches will still be on sale, but US is gone from the website by the time this episode is out. And you can still, you'll still be able to buy a Series 9 or an Ultra 2 from a third-party retailer, so Best Buy or Amazon, but once the December 25th ban officially goes into place, Apple won't be able to import the units to the United States at all. And any inventory that Apple has starting on December 25th, it also can't sell that inventory to one of those third-party retailers. So basically what Amazon or Best Buy has in stock on December 25th, they can continue to sell until they run out. And depending on how long this goes on for, they could run out or they could maintain inventory throughout the whole thing. Yeah, and unlike some of Apple's other products, the watch has a lot of different variants and SKUs, right? Because right, you have all the yeah. different bands and case styles and sizes and for cellular and non-cellular. So it's quite probable that the amount of like in-store stock of every single unit is obviously lower than if they were just banning iPads, for instance, where you know, you've know got storage sizes and you've got cellular, but you don't have the different colors. You know, there's so many more axes of variation and customization. It's like if they banned air, if they, you know, you can ban AirPods, but there's loads of AirPods in stock because there's like two models uh, mm-hmm. with a watch. It's more complicated than that. So the exact, like let's say you want the Space Gray um, or the Midnight, the Midnight Watch, you know, with Celia, the number of units of them in retail channel is probably not very many, right? A few hundred thousand maximum across the country. And without the ongoing supply, that will dry up. So you could probably imagine within like a fortnight or so, the retail stock of most models would disappear. I don't think most likely this will last a fortnight, though. You don't think so? I think something's going to happen. To back up just a little bit, Apple is removing the Apple Watch online and in stores ahead of that December 25th deadline. And they say it's them preemptively complying with the looming ITC ban that, again, goes into effect on December 25th. But the clear like subtext of this is that Apple announcing this move ahead of time is it putting that pressure on the Biden administration and on Massimo to a degree to say, hey, we're not messing around. Like, you need to veto this or we're just going to stop selling this thing. And they said that that's going to harm consumers. That's going to harm their suppliers, some of which are based in the United States. But the expectation is that Biden won't veto it for a couple of reasons, one of which being the whole the temperature around big tech in the U.S. right now is pretty bad. And Biden doesn't want to be seen bailing out another big tech company. And also, Massimo is a United States American medical device company. They're not some patent troll. They're a legitimate U.S.-based company. And it would look like Biden 
screwing over the small guy to save the big guy, basically. Yeah, because uh, Obama did this when Samsung and Apple were fighting over patents in like 2013. Yeah. And, you know, Samsung got an ITC ruling on the iPhone, but Obama vetoed it. But that's like, you know, Chinese company or, or a Taiwanese company versus the US company. So the the geographic breakdown there was pretty clear where the president would lie. And it was also not in this climate of, you know, everyone hating on big tech companies for being too big. So, like, it's a lot harder to see this time around that the presidential um, veto is would take place. And I feel like if it was going to, it probably would have already happened. You know, like, I'm sure Tim, I'm sure Tim Cook's been whining and dying in Bi- the Biden office for the last like two months trying to get to get this sorted out, and they haven't really done it. And it seems unlikely to me that they're going to make such a monumental decision in the, the the twilight hours of Christmas, right? Like, yeah, the Christmas timing around all of this is interesting for a lot of reasons. Apple seems to have come up with a, a plan that will mean people can buy an Apple Watch if they're giving it to someone for Christmas. But any sort of... Apple as a company is basically shut down right now. The government as a entity is coasting towards Christmas. Like if something was going to happen, it would have happened. People are on holiday. It's as simple yeah. as that. Like, And before Obama vetoed the Samsung thing in 2013, the last time that it happened was 1987 when the Reagan administration vetoed an ITC ban on Samsung semiconductor memory chip imports and all devices that use those chips. So that's two ITC vetoes by the president since 1987. So what's that, 36 years? That's not good news for Apple. The the ITC process where if you get a patent to this far through the... Because obviously the, the patent... Um, judgment in court is still being appealed right like apple's taking it to the highest level but that's ongoing that hasn't been ruled on the itc process basically lets the stuff get banned in the interim while the legal process goes on and there's a lot of criticism about the itc process i think it's kind of stupid other people think it's stupid too like you know it's like guilty before proven innocent or whatever you know like the whole or innocent before proven guilty like they just they just let you ban in the meantime even though technically the whole thing could get overturned in six months and then like apple be considered legitimate all that aside though apple uses all these same tools against everybody it doesn't like as well so like you you know you you have to take you you have your you have your cake and you eat it too right like they've done this to other people other people have done it to them they're a big company they can take their you know take their punishment when it arrives and sort it out in the thing i do generally agree the it system is stupid but you can't really take a principal stance on that basis because Apple uses the exact same tactics. Every big company loves patents apart from when it's not in their favor, right? So like, that's where we are. And out of, it's not like Massimo is just like a a, a patent troll, as you said, right? Like they're not just a, a, a holder of random IP and it seems to be the patents are semi-legitimate in terms of like what they actually describe in terms of functionality. Massimo do make a load of health products. So on the moral basis you can't really be like well this is just stupid at its core the patent system is stupid but this is the world we live in and apple plays all the same games as everybody else it's just in this case it's got to the end of the road uh, i think what's going to happen is the watches will get banned but it won't last you know we're not going to be coming into like march and the watches are still not available for sale in the us mm-hmm. it's a very short term situation that will last through christmas and then we'll get sorted out in one way or the other one option is that you know, Massimo now has the leverage, so Apple would be forced to settle, right? And Apple can say that it doesn't want to settle, it wants to fight us to the very end, but everybody knows when it comes down to it, if the if a deal can be made, it will be made, right? And Apple pay money and then there we go. And so many components of the phone or the watch are already under patent licensing agreements where Apple pays X dollars per, per unit and Apple's not happy about it, but then they have to pay them. And then sometimes it gets blown up to a, the Qualcomm situation where they try and divorce from Qualcomm entirely. In other cases, they just pay them off and move on. So maybe that will happen here with Massimo if they can agree an amount. That's one option. The option that I think is probably most likely is that Apple will work around the ITC ban with some sort of software solution, whether that's some way of implementing the feature differently or just disabling the feature entirely and just letting the watches go back on the market without the blood oxygen sensor being active at all. 
that feels like the most likely route here to just get the what like whatever you can do at all costs just get the watches back on market even if the feature's not there then you can sort out the legal case and worry about the blocks and sensor layer because practically speaking the amount of people buying an apple watch series 9 for the blood oxygen feature is pretty low yeah. like i feel like you could ship the watches tomorrow without the blood oxygen app and no very few people would even notice like it's not a big deal in terms of the functionality of the watch it's not like the screens that under dispute for like pads right like the most of the functionality of the apple watch will be completely unperturbed if the blood oxygen sensor was just disabled so i think something like that will probably arrive i know mark german at bloomberg's been reporting that apple is investigating software solutions massimo replied saying that no a software solution won't suffice. It will have to be done at the hardware level. Who knows about that? I'm sure the lawyers will fight back and forth straight after Christmas. Some way, the watch will get back on sale. In in China, the last time that I have the, the best frame of reference for this kind of situation was when the Qualcomm and, and Apple uh, fight was going on and Qualcomm got a ban on the iPhone in China. Apple circumvented that ban by rolling out uh, software solutions where basically they just disable functionality that were covered by the patents under review and then they moved on and like that was even stupid stuff like the the animation for the multitasking app switcher was like instead of swiping up the apps you just they just faded away with like a crossfade stuff so there's really dumb ways you can get around the wording of patterns and in the long term you can then you know work on a, a fuller solution so that's kind of my position where this is going to happen the watches are going to go off sale for a few days they'll be back in stock in january an important part of it, too, is that any Apple Watch with a blood oxygen sensor that has already been sold is unaffected by this. So if you have an Apple Watch Series 6, 7, 8, or 9, or an Ultra, you're fine. And part of the ITC's system is that it makes an exception for the service, repair, or any sort of warranty claim for units already sold. I think one of the dumbest things about the ITC's process here is that Apple can't like formally appeal the ITC's ruling until after the presidential review period has expired. So Apple told me that they're absolutely going to appeal on December 25th or on December 26th rather, but appealing again, doesn't put a, put a hold on the ban. So Apple can appeal, but during that appeal process, the Apple watch still won't be available, which isn't a great situation. I feel like for anyone involved, that's like, that feels like a very hostile process. Yeah, the ITC process is dumb. It just is. But that's that's the that's the reality of the world. One th- historical fact here that a lot of people like bringing up is that back, you know, 10 years ago, Apple was looking at maybe acquiring Massimo. Yeah. Um in acquisition and they ultimately didn't, right? But they ended up hiring a load of their employees and they paid them more money and then they built part of the health division which made stuff like the heart rate sensor and the watch and the blood oxygen sensor and it's not a great look when you have like the big company, no. the David and Goliath, like, you know, just swallowing and poaching employees to make the same features. Not the greatest thing from a PR perspective, but it's not illegal, right? In fact, the opposite is illegal. Well, like anti poaching yeah. agreements are what got Apple in trouble 15 years ago. They're like, you know, back in the old days, there was agreements between like Steve Jobs and um, the Google CEOs and stuff about not poaching each other's employees, mm-hmm. and they ended up getting a whole load of court trouble over that. So, Apple, the fact that Apple just hired the Massimo employees to come and work for them and build the same products, right, is not a is not a crime. That's just the world of business, and Apple can pay you higher salaries, so they did. The bit that's under contention is whether the feature was built in exactly the same way using the trade secrets and intellectual property from Massimo. And obviously, Massimo says it does. Apple contests otherwise. That's what the court system's for. But if you want a good parallel, the thing that keeps coming up for me when I see this is the is the inter- is the Apple modem situation, right? Where they want to build a modem that replaces the Qualcomm modem in the iPhone. And eventually we think they will make one, but it remains a question whether Qualcomm will be satisfied that it doesn't interfere with all their patents and licensing that was one of the big motivations for Apple embarking on that project in the first place. So you could have a situation where, you know, the 2026 iPhone comes out with an Apple modem and then Qualcomm's like, well, hello, ITC. We think it, <laughs> it violates all these patterns and Apple's not paying us the royalties for it anymore. So can you please ban the iPhone again? We'll have the exact same thing in a different space. But that's like a hypothetical and we don't know. This is real and it's just monumentous that it's happening. Uh, but I don't think it's going to be like a long-term thing. I think within January, there'll be a solution of some description and then the court process will carry on for who knows how long. Do you think Apple's decision to announce this 
like what what do you make of apple's decision because they're voluntarily taking it off a few days early is that just to put pressure on the biden administration and to kind of sway the public sentiment sentiment one of apple's arguments is that the apple watch is a life-saving device and by not having it on the market it's hurting consumers who might be alerted to life-saving health problems with their apple watch that's a big stretch of an argument in general and it almost seems like it's apple kind of shooting themselves in the foot because apple has the power here if they really cared about the quote-unquote life-saving potential of the apple watch they could a settle with massimo b like you said ship the apple watch without the blood oxygen sensor because it's not the most crucial part of the whole health life-saving aspect of the device. They're shooting themselves in the foot a little bit with this announcement and some of the framing around it, I think. I mean, one of the reasons they announced it a bit early was so that anybody out there who really does want an Apple Watch for Christmas is going to buy it Monday, yeah. Tuesday, Wednesday, right? Like this week. Uh, I think the online sales ending slightly earlier is partly to do with logistics of like if you're not if you're not allowed to sell them beyond Christmas Day, then if they're in shipment, then that's a problem, and they have to like recall them, and like it becomes complicated. Um, and you need somebody to update the website, right? And it is a holiday period. Like I think the holiday factor is a huge thing here. That oh yeah, it's just you know it's a it's a coincidence of timing, but it really like puts spanners in the works like executives on holiday vps on holiday engineering that might be you know looking at ways to avoid the blood oxygen sensor situation are away and they might not be back until next week and stuff so like that's a whole load of disruption uh they announced it a week ahead partly to get biden's attention right a bit more and to make some headlines partly to make sure that any customers that did want to buy it this week for christmas go and do it like i think it's kind of expected practice but the outcome is when they when they had the statement on Saturday, I was like, okay, there's a 95% chance this this is actually going to happen because it's too late at this point. If it wasn't if it wasn't Christmas week, you might have a bit more flexibility, but it yeah. just is. And so nobody's going to be that interested in helping a big tech company out yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sell a few more watches. So here we are. If this was a iPhone, right, under under a threat oh, of being yeah. banned, I think, you know, the leverage there, if you've got an iPhone ban, the leverage is way higher because, like, over half of Apple's profits are from the iPhone. And lots of people buy iPhones at Christmas. Lots of people buy Apple Watches too, but it's, you know, the iPhone scale is ridiculous. With the watch, I think Apple can just bear the brunt of it and, you know, take a fortnight off of selling the watch to make a point and hopefully prevent themselves from getting a long-term, you know... Like, the the two-week punishment of not selling the watch might be uh, the lesser of two evils than giving Massimo the leverage to get a huge royalty uh, fee, right, per unit for forevermore. So that's probably their calculus there. With If it was about the iPhone, then in a way, Apple would be way more forced to just sell up front and pay them mm-hmm. off because they can't afford for the iPhone not to be on sale. Uh, the watch is a less significant. Not uh, not insignificant. It's a huge deal, oh, yeah. but they're not the crown jewels. So yeah, we'll see. It's a fascinating story, and it's something that I think is kind of going to dominate our lives for the next couple of weeks and might involve some Christmas Day news and writing for some of us, but it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. It's it's unprecedented. Today's episode of Happy Hour is sponsored by Setup. Setup by MacPaw is a subscription-based platform that offers a carefully curated collection of Mac and iOS apps. Their catalog empowers Mac users like you with top-notch tools to conquer any task and improve your workflow. Whether you're into design, software development, photo editing, or whatever the task, Setup has got you covered with its impressive selection of more than 240 apps. You don't have to go hunting through thousands of low-quality apps or search results anymore, as Setup has got you covered. Their dedicated creation team ensures that every app in their collection is of the highest quality, and you don't have to buy anything individually. With the flat $9.99 a month subscription fee, you can get unlimited access to their entire library of apps. And the best part of all is that all of the apps are the full-featured pro versions with no ads. And if you're looking for the perfect gift for the Mac user in your life, why not get them a Setup e-gift card? You have the flexibility to choose the amount that matches the different subscription tiers, so it's suitable for a whole range of budgets. And with instant online delivery, it's a great last-minute gift idea. This holiday season, give the gift of Setup the perfect choice for anyone with a Mac or iOS device. Visit the link in the show notes to learn more and sign up. Thanks again to Setup for sponsoring the show. We finally have a couple details on next generation CarPlay. Apple made it in under the wire for their 
announcements of the first vehicle announcements before the end of 2023. Mayo, let me remind me, on the during the week you drive a Porsche and on the weekend you drive your Aston Martin, is that right? Yeah, yeah. So when Next Gen CarPlay comes to Porsche and Aston Martin in 2024, you'll be able to take full advantage. Definitely, definitely. I've got this entire garage of cars right here. But, <laughs> uh, no, I don't, I don't drive. But, That's uh, pretty much all we know, though. Porsche and Aston Martin will adopt next generation CarPlay sometime next year. They did give us two photos, quote, renders. The Porsche image in particular, what we're seeing in the layout is similar to what Apple showed at WWDC 2022. But it's also, I think, less ambitious, particularly the interface on the main, the main like center infotainment screen. Mm-hmm. It looks a lot more like what we have now. Where the bit and the big change is that CarPlay just extends to, in the Porsche's case, the passenger side seat and the the uh, instrument cluster, which CarPlay doesn't do now for things like the speedometer and if it's an EV, things like the range and the efficiency. Yeah, so right now CarPlay can theoretically support the instrument cluster display for like showing the map directions yeah. and information like that, uh, but it can't show like the speedometers and stuff because that comes from the car. And next gen CarPlay is like a fusion of you know iOS side rendering with data provided from the car in real time. Um, And there's still a lot of technical questions about how this works because there are lots of legal implications Mm -hmm. about requiring, like if you're using software to show the speedometer, it has to be, you know, running a real-time operating system, all these other requirements. Like it it gets very complicated and there's like loads of compliance implications, which Apple didn't really answer at all in this preview uh, this week. What we got was like a slightly more down-to-earth image of, what they showed at WWC 2022. And I don't know if like what they showed at 22 is like complete vaporware and just never existed and was just a complete mock-up or if the implementations by Porsche and Aston Martin that we're seeing now just don't support that full experience because the cars just have less screens, right? Like the WWC 22 example was just like one super, super wide display that you know, panoramically panned yeah. from the instrument cluster all the way across the dashboard. And so you had a super wide panel and then a panel of screen below that. And so, for instance, in the 22 um, mock-up, the springboard on the, you know, the home screen of app icons had like the weather app side-by-side, almost like an iPad split-screen multitasking experience. But in the Porsche in- demonstration here, it doesn't really seem like there's room for another app to go side-by-side, so they don't show that. But you do get like a split view of they've got a running phone call in one little window and they've got directions in one little window and then you've got your kind of more standard app icon layer above. And then you do have like the calendar events, the current music information, the weather. Those widgets are there, but they're in like a separate window, you know, segmented off uh, to where the instrument cluster is. Whereas in the WWC example, it was all in this like one integrated continuous screen. But I think... I guess like this system could still support that single uh, continuous screen if and when a manufacturer comes on board with a vehicle that actually has that hardware. You can also see some differences between the Aston Martin and the Porsche implementations. Like the Aston Martin, at least based on this render that we have, it takes full advantage of this new CarPlay design's support for climate controls. But if you look at the Porsche implementation, at least Based on the design, it seems like the climate controls are still controlled by by Porsche software rather than CarPlay. Because one of the arguments among people who have said that next-gen CarPlay is vaporware, will never happen, is that car manufacturers don't want to hand over control of the entire in-car experience to Apple. But both of these announcements from Porsche and Aston Martin like the designs that we're seeing are clearly like Porsche and Aston Martin. They both had a hand in crafting the these designs. Yeah, like the Porsche one has like a tartan checkered background. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's not because car makers don't really have any control over how CarPlay looks today. But this seems to suggest they'll have a bigger say in next-gen CarPlay. I do have a question though, like... Hmm. Can the user change the background if they I wanted was... to? Or if you buy a Porsche, am I stuck with this tartan background on the Is CarPlay it, experience? It looks pretty awful, I think. But... Yeah, it doesn't look great. And that would put me off. If, let's assume I could buy a Porsche. Uh, <laughs> I, I'd be like, no, I don't care what the car, the rest of it's like. The fact that CarPlay's forced to have a checkered tartan background, be like, nope, picking something else. 
Because that was one of the other nice little like subtle touches with the WWC example mm-hmm. is that like it was like this continuous gradient and like you had like the map and the instrument cluster and that would like fade out into like the color of the album art of the music that was playing. Like it was like pretty sleek in that way with like these widgets and little rounded rectangles over the top. Yeah. The Porsche example is like here's this like repeating background and then all of these widgets just don't have any you know separation at all. They're just kind of stuck over the top of it. So yeah, aesthetically it, it looks pretty. It looks pretty average. Definitely looks like an automaker had a hand in developing it rather than a tech company. Yeah, and part of the pitch during the keynote uh, in 22 was that you'd get the control to pick your own dials and appearances and the way the speedometer looks. But in like the car and driver article, it says like Apple has given Aston Martin Porsche these variety of customizable templates to make it fit their own style and taste, right, of their ethos of their given brand. But which kind of implies that you can't customize it, but maybe it's just like, this is the default and you can change it if you want to. The downside to each car maker having more control over the design is that it probably means adoption of next-gen CarPlay will be even slower than maybe we expected and than the initial CarPlay rollout was. This is literally just Porsche and Aston Martin saying, yeah, we're still on board for next-gen CarPlay. I think Aston Martin said it'll be supported by its 2024 infotainment system. Still don't know many details about what exactly that means. Porsche didn't give any more details. And there's absolutely no information about whether Porsche, Aston Martin, or any other car maker plans to make next-gen CarPlay available to cars that are already on the road. Like whether people will be able to upgrade to next-gen CarPlay with a software update. Yeah, that might be technically not possible. We We just don't know. Yeah. Also, what's interesting is Aston Martin wasn't on Apple's initial list of manufacturers that would support next-gen CarPlay, which to me maybe seems like bad news. They couldn't come up with any of their previously announced partners to make this announcement and instead had to go to like a another ultra-luxury brand. Yeah, it's a shame they didn't have like a, a standard middle-class car manufacturer yeah. at launch ready to be like, you know, here's Ford or Vauxhall or something and just like, you know, a car that some normal person actually buys. Uh, but this is this is quite a trend with CarPlay. There's a, there's a various CarPlay features that end up being on the high-end Porsche cars, especially first, and then slowly make their way to, you know, more common garden vehicles later on. Um, stuff like the instrument cluster presentation was originally, I believe, Porsche exclusive, and it just took, you know, a couple of, another couple of years for it to trickle way down into some cars. Like my uh, mum, my mum's Ford has that where the CarPlay experience can show up on the instrument cluster. For Does the it show navigation. the Apple Maps interface on the instrument cluster, or just the directions? It just shows the directions, um, but that might be a limitation of the screen in the car. Like it's not like a super high resolution screen behind the instrument cluster, so it's mm-hmm. basically just like monochrome. Uh, but it does show the directions. Yeah, I drove a Polestar. I rented a Polestar when I was in California for the iPhone event in September. And it has support for Apple Maps in the instrument cluster with like the full Apple Maps interface. Oh, that's cool. And it looked incredible. I, re- I did a story about it. I'll put it in the show notes. But by far the best implementation of CarPlay I've seen by any car maker. And it kind of in some ways looks better than these Porsche and Aston Martin renders of quote unquote next gen CarPlay. But we'll see. At least we have some details now. As few. I'll, I'll give it to them. I was expecting uh, the CarPlay website to get updated to say coming announcements coming next year. So they did at least deliver uh, that it wasn't quite a vehicle announcement, but it was at least manufacturers being on board. For Apple News Plus subscribers, some good news this week. Apple announced that The Athletic, which is the sports kind of... They used to be independent. Now they're owned by the New York Times sports publication. They are coming to Apple News Plus now, already available. Now, yeah. And then Wirecutter, another New York Times publication, is coming to Apple News in early 2024. So The Athletic is just Apple News Plus, and Wirecutter reviews are coming to everyone via the Apple News app. Yeah, The Athletic's kind of like what they do with The Wall Street Journal, where you can have like The Wall Street Journal channel. And yeah. it has all, so it's not like a magazine. It's not just that magazines, right? It's mm-hmm. like you know integrated articles. And they all have the little News Plus badge on them. So if you don't subscribe, you click on it, it asks you to subscribe. But if you do have it, the channel is basically unlocked and you can view all the content. And like the Wall Street Journal, it doesn't seem like there's much uh, left out of the Apple News Plus partnership compared to what you can find on the website. Like most of no. the articles and stuff appear to be there. Apple calls it full full access. So uh, 
if you only care about the athletic casually uh, now and you don't mind reading everything inside the news app either on iphone ipad or mac now you don't really need to pay for it anymore yeah i've paid for the athletic separately for a few years ever since they poached one of my favorite cincinnati reds reporters from a local newspaper in cincinnati i started subscribing to the athletic to read him and it's a great publication and now that it's in apple news plus i probably won't have to pay for the athletic separately we'll see We'll see what the reading experience is like in Apple News versus like the Athletic app. But so far, it looks certainly helps justify Apple News Plus, especially after the price increase in September. Yeah. And it's at least somewhat of a reconciliation with the New York Times, who very publicly pulled out of the news app altogether with the Mm -hmm. New York Times magazine um, newspaper in 2020. Um, And these Athletic and Wirecard are not the New York Times, but they are subsidiary brands like they're owned by the MIT. So they've obviously come to some sort of agreement here to bring them back. So maybe at some point, eventually, we might see some New York Times content coming up again. I mean, the New York Times is a very successful standalone subscription, so there isn't loads of incentive for them to kotow to the Apple line. Uh, but you can see maybe like a partial deal or, you know, exposure even if... Because some of the news um, outlets, like they don't participate with Apple News Plus, but they let you subscribe to their own, subscri- to their own subscription through the news app. Uh, that might be a route to get the New York Times back in there at some point, just as like you can see it all in one place, even if you have to pay additionally for it. In the European Union, Apple has offered to open up the iPhone's NFC system that Apple Pay uses to third parties. So this is in response to the EU. What are they? They're investigating accusations that by only allowing Apple Pay to use the NFC chip as the payment so as a payment solution is stifling yeah, competition. Like when, when, you, when you hold your iPhone to a payment terminal in retail, mm-hmm. the only thing that can launch is Apple Pay, right? Yeah. So the Apple Control payment experience. There are other companies in the world that exist that would like to compete with Apple Pay and let you use other payment services by the NFC chip as conveniently as Apple Pay is, where that's like individual banks not wanting to use apple pay but just wanting to watch their own features without their own without the apple fees attached or you know some other things maybe you could like venmo just by holding your phone to somebody else's phone right like Mm -hmm. there's there's a lot of like theoretical functionality there but mostly the banks complained that you know apple pay makes money for apple like they take a chunk of it and the banks don't really have a case to not be part not participate with apple pay they say it's anti-competitive because if they want to if they want to reach iphone customers they have to use apple pay so the the EU charges are basically that Apple is, you know, exploiting its dominance in the smartphone market to also give it dominance in mobile payments industry, and the um, Commission is already bringing charges on music streaming. That's the case with Spotify, and that's advancing uh, very very rapidly. And like Apple's not winning there. The Apple Pay case. It seems that the EU is planning to bring charges, i.e. they believe that Apple acted anti-competitively, but as like a last-ditch effort, Apple's offering some mitigations in terms of opening up the system uh, to allow rivals more access to, you know, tap-and-go contactless payments. Those, um, that proposition is now being like communicated to the EU who are talking to some of the complainants to see whether they'd be satisfied by that. And then in a couple of months' time, we'll find out Uh, whether they were happy or whether they're still going to proceed with formal charges. I think it's interesting that Apple has offered to open up the NFC chip in this situation, but they're still, their focus and what they seem to want to fight more than anything is in the Spotify case where they're fighting, but they're still losing, like you said. Most recently, a couple weeks ago, Bloomberg reported that the EU is putting finishing touches on on a decision that would prohibit Apple from blocking music services from pushing their users to third-party subscription options. So that's basically the anti-steering rules in Apple's App Store guidelines. Yeah, not mandated in in that purchase, which yeah, obviously comes right. with 30 to 15 to 30% commission. And the EU decision there would only apply to music services. So that's Spotify and I guess like Tidal and whatever, but clearly mainly just Spotify. Yeah. <laughs> Spotify is very vocal about its hate for Apple and Daniel this is Eck. like the Netherlands dating app situation. Yeah, exactly. Except it applies to music app only. Uh, each each segment of the apps market will slowly get, yeah. <laughs> slowly get their own carve outs until it eventually all collapses. But uh, this is how it stands right now. Yeah, I guess with NFC, like 
Apple must have just run the numbers and been like, I guess if we're going to get forced to do this, this and this, maybe we can offer to only do this and this and that'll be sufficient. So that's what they're going ahead with. We'll find out in a couple of months. Also speaking of the App Store and some of the features there, Apple has announced something called contingent pricing. So this basically, it gives developers a way to offer discounted subscriptions to users who are already subscribed to a different offering, whether that's from that developer themselves or via another developer. The best way I can explain this, I think, is say, say you're like David Smith, who makes Widgetsmith. He could say, if you're already subscribed to Widgetsmith, you can get Pedometer++ for a discounted subscription rate. But he could also team up with somebody else and say, hey, if you're subscribed to Overcast, I'll give you Widgetsmith for at a $2 per month discount. Is that about what Apple is thinking here? Yeah, because obviously if you're just one developer, you can just make a subscription tier that gives you more features, right? And just you just associate it with your account and then it works in both places. Um, and some developers do that kind of thing, right? Like they have a overarching subscription that then just unlocks different products inside that subscription. You just log in with your account each one and you can buy it through their website. You can buy it through Apple in their purchase. I think what makes this stand out is that it's going to allow you to basically collaborate with other developers on the mm-hmm. App Store um, to give like an easy way to using that purchase to basically get a bundle pricing for subscriptions uh, across the board. So you could have like, I, I this, uh, this might not be what's in mind, but it's a good example. Like, you know, the rumors about like Paramount and Apple offering like a bundle yeah. offer. Like, so you already subscribed to Apple TV Plus. Obviously, it doesn't, it's not a perfect example because obviously it's a system thing. So it doesn't go through in that purchase. It goes through something very similar. But imagine, right, if, if the TV app was just a third party video streaming app, well, you've got the TV, the Apple TV subscription through in that purchase. You open the Paramount app, it can know that you're subscribed to Apple TV and present you a collaborative discount. That then, if you subscribe to Paramount, you get a cheaper rate. And then the App Store would manage when you cancel one or the other, it automatically removes the discount for the other one, right? So uh, it's just a nice way to offer more functionality for in-app purchase. And it probably responds to... Because some of the criticism to the monopoly of in-app purchase, like some of it's over the 30% cut, right, being too expensive and, um, you know, Apple should charge less. But part of it's also just like functionality-wise, developers can do more with alternative payment systems than they can do with in-app purchase because in-app purchase has very few options for, you know, repeating, uh, you know, um, winning back people that unsubscribe or contacting people again or, you know, offering discounts or, co- or bonuses or promo codes. And they've slowly added some of those features over the last few years. And this is probably going to fall into that bucket where they've had requests for some from some big companies that are basically like, we want to partner with this person, but in-app purchase doesn't really let us do this. Can you help us out? And so they've got enough requests for that that they're actually building out this feature. But yeah, I think it sounds pretty clever because you do need like the app store to manage the kind of pairing of these bundling for the cases where if you then go to unsubscribe from one of them it can then remove you from the bonus on the other one or at least you know prompt you when you unsubscribe hey if you unsubscribe from this you're going to lose your five dollar discount to app b do you really want to continue yes or no and that helps with retention and stuff so you do need it to be at like the system level if you're offering it through in a purchase the alternative is the apps, the the companies who just not offer, not offer it through the app at all and only make it available on the website. So Apple's hoping that if you let them do it natively, they will, and then they get their commission out of it. Another example of this I just thought of is like we have a nine to five Mac app on the App Store that has an in app subscription. So theoretically, once we once this feature launches, we could offer a discounted rate for somebody to go sign up for the Electric subscription and the Electric app on the App Store. So I'm thinking of more and more examples of about how this might be useful. Yeah, or if you wanted to be like a, um, you know, expand the business, you could partner with an app that you cover on yeah. 95 Mac. True. And so, yeah. oh, you already have the 95 Mac subscription. Here's a here's an offer to get the, you know, name insert company here subscription yeah. for three dollars off or something. So there's there's opportunities for partnerships, and eventually that, if in success, it results in more subscriptions overall, which results to more revenue to Apple Services Division, which results in more money for them. So that's the kind of pathway here. I think it's a good it's a good it's a good addition. Yeah, Apple says they're piloting the feature privately. They you can request to join and they'll be out onboarding more developers soon. And then, you know, probably within a year it'll become like a just a formal feature that anyone can use. Also this week, we are sponsored by Topdon. 
The Topton TC002 thermal camera is a groundbreaking device that turns your iPhone or iPad into an infrared thermal camera. You can get ultra high resolution thermal imaging straight from your phone. With a capture resolution of 256 by 192, you can get superior clarity with every thermal image taken. It's perfect for the chilly season at the moment too, with operating temperatures between minus four degrees up to a thousand degrees Fahrenheit. And it has an effective distance up to about 16 feet. The extensive testing range means that you can accurately measure heat of just about anything while you can stay at a safe distance. And all of this comes in a small compact unit that just hangs off your phone's lightning connector. You just plug it in the top of your phone. With their app, you can unlock all sorts of advanced features like a picture-in-picture -picture mode and the ability to mon monitor temperature changes by waveform. So get the TC002 for a special limited time price by hitting up the link in the show notes. Thanks again to Top Don for sponsoring the show. So let's do some Ask9to5Mac to round out the this kind of holiday episode. The year. Round the out year. the year. Jake asks, what are your thoughts on government bodies changing the way tech companies work and make their products? Is there an overall for or against, or is it more complicated than that? What do you think about this one, Mayo? Well, it depends on the situation right there's like, a lot of nuance yeah there's a lot of nuance because sometimes government bodies make good decisions and sometimes they make less good decisions i think a classic example of the even if it wasn't like a going against the legal system it was like a a miss outcome was the apple books case all those years ago against amazon with agency oh, pricing yeah. and you know apple end up getting raked over the coals for that they got screwed and it basically just helped amazon keep a monopoly over ebook market uh like, I don't think there were the, you know, you get into the nitty gritty of the legal arguments and it, you know, it was fine as, as far as the law is written, but you can see the outcome is probably not being productive for everybody. And so Apple basically had to backtrack on books and they've had no foothold in the books market ever, ever since. Um, it can't, you can't really argue that was a better outcome uh, than, you know, the more competitive situation that Apple tried to start back with the iPad in 2010. Uh, so that's an example of where it went wrong. I think stuff like the App Store, the more recent stuff, is comes from a good place and probably does need reining in because if you just let Apple carry on, they'll dominate the entire world, <laughs> like and yeah. with no clear way, no clear outlet for other competition to to seep into the market. So it is definitely comes down to a case by case situation. I mean, you can even look at the the Massimo ITC case right now. Like that's a government telling Apple that they got to stop selling their products because. You know, government controlled body with with the rules implementing the rules of 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 law, and you can argue that the patent system is stupid, and therefore anything relating to patents shouldn't be allowed to happen. So um, that's bad. But like overall, I think generally you have to agree that the law works, and so governments, you know, in their privileged position, do get to control what companies do, and generally the outcomes are fair. But mm -hmm. obviously, some of these things are just subjective. Some of these things are just disconnected from reality and the results are bad. Like, I think getting Apple to change its behavior about around the App Store is probably good. But there's many different avenues or enforcements that you could force them to do. Some of them I think are silly and some of them, some of them I think are fine. Um, so it does depend. And, you, when you, and with Apple, like attention from government... Of, is naturally tied to the success of the company, right? Because mm -hmm. when companies are small, they don't have the market power to really attract attention and regulation. Apple is huge. You know, unbelievably huge. Like, 10 times the size it was 10 years ago. And naturally, they attract now 10 times the interest from governments. So they, they take the rust with this move. They have armies of lawyers that can fight everything. You know, they know their position in the market. They could have made changes around the App Store years ago. You know, many, of the, I'm sure all of these outcomes were talked about and discussed and predicted. They haven't been blindsided by it. So, you know, you can't feel too, you can't give them too much pity. Uh, but sometimes the government makes a good decision. Sometimes they make silly decisions. So, yeah, it, there is nuance here. I think there are a lot of examples too where just the threat or, Apple knowing that governments are watching them has led to changes sort of preemptively. A good example is the like the App Store small business program where they cut the App Store rate for developers making under a million dollars from 30% to 
that helps them quite a bit in their argument that in the argument that 30% commission rates are just too high. You can also sort of see the same thing in the EU with the Apple Pay case that we just talked about. But on the flip side, there's changes uh, like the USB-C switch on the iPhone 15 that right now, that's a great change and it probably only happened because of the pressure in the EU and the common charger regulations. But one thing I worry about is that in five, six, ten years, whenever something better than USB-C is here, are we going to have to wait for the EU to change and update that those rules before Apple can make a switch? And will having those rules in place kind of disincentivize companies like Apple for making something new? There's the benefit now, and then there's also ramifications down the line. Because these government yeah, agencies move slow. Are upon, yeah, decisions that are forced upon you five years ago suddenly look silly five years later in some exactly. cases. So, you know, you have to keep with the times. And unfortunately, governments are not as responsive as capitalistic companies are wanting to make changes, right? So it's a big, big elephantine mess. And, you know, the law is un, 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 understandable by yeah. most people because it is like built on hundreds of years of changes. And there are edge cases and places where technology have just outstrip the law by a mile and so we you know they end up catching up and being too slow i think you could argue that action on the app store is coming too late like it probably should have happened five or ten years ago right like mm-hmm. there's uh so the the government doesn't act perfectly companies don't act perfectly the existence of both you know they generally the tensions even out and they keep each other in line like the the most recent stuff that i think is a bit of a stupid is like the stuff around iMessage like i really don't think iMessage is a thing that the government should be like cracking down on on like the apple's position on it because i think the competitive market for messaging is pretty strong like whatsapp facebook messenger telegram signal all these applications they can live and thrive under the iphone as it is today in the app store and whatsapp is bigger than iMessage in most countries so like yeah you, you can't just say that apple's monopolizing on the system and it's not like like those messaging apps mostly monetize through like advertising right and so the economic argument about like in-app purchase doesn't really apply or it applies far less. So if if Apple's like the EU thing at the moment with the DMA about forcing interoperability and messaging is like a bad situation. And and that applies to iMessage, but it also applies to WhatsApp, right? Like WhatsApp's under going to be under those same rules next year. I kind of think that's stupid too. Like I think what's the point of having messaging apps what's the point of companies existing to offer unique messaging experiences if they all just have to like interoperate with each other? So maybe other people disagree, but that's kind of my position on something most recently that I think's uh, silly. But overall, you know, I'm not a, I'm not an anarchist. I think governments <laughs> make sense. <laughs> I also always like to point out that the United States has done almost nothing in this regard, specifically around Apple. There's threats and stuff supposedly in the works. But right now, a lot of the government body regulation on Apple has come from the European Union. So make of that what you will. Matt Corey asks, as an Apple media outlet with a great audience, what's your advice for an app developer to get press coverage in 2023 or 2024? How often should we reach out and what should the message be and what kind of media assets or other materials can we provide to make it easier on you? I was on Charlie Chapman's launched podcast a few months ago where I talked about this quite a bit because launched is a usually he interviews like indie developers about their apps and he had me on kind of to talk about the nine to five Mac story a bit. But what I said on that show was the more information you can give us about your app and the more imagery and the more press just material and details that you can give us the better. And the more heads up you can give us the better about when your app's launching, what's new and sort of your history, what other apps have you done, the big picture context too. And I think don't get discouraged maybe if we don't write about like version one of your app, but we notice that you're pushing, like every time you release an update, you're you're pitching us again and again. And we notice that like, hey, this person's like making a great app and it's getting better at a very quick pace. That will catch our eye more than maybe a one-off email about the new launch of a new app. Yeah, I would not be scared to send multiple emails. Like the people that um, I think some people might be like, oh, I don't want to like annoy them too much by sending messages. But the reality is 
9to5Mac or any big websites get so many emails that you have to send something multiple times to have a chance of it being seen because there's just hundreds of emails of tip emails about random apps coming in every week. Like it's it's yeah. unbelievable the amount of stuff that comes in. And so I w- if, if you're an app developer really trying to break through, I would send an email on every update that adds any feature of any significance, right? Like you want to, if you're literally a nobody, that's the best way to do it. Release an app, screenshots, link, test flight, invite, test flight in the the email right release notes photos give it a photo that can be used immediately for the header image like you know two by one 16 by nine make it as easy as possible for somebody whether it's nine for mac or any other website to just get a post up about it and you're way more likely to get it if you send an email that's like hey there i've just made a new app and i'd like you to try it out please get back to me thank you bye no one's going to reply to you it's just It's just a fact of labor, right? Like there's so like it just the time requirement is too much. What you need is like a simple title that says what's going on, screenshot, 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 release notes, test flight invite, and a link, and maybe the time at which the thing's coming out, and then thank you bye. And obviously, if the developer, if the website replies to you, you can follow up with more information, and just send that every single time there's an app update, and you might get lucky. You do always have to remember though that websites, even on a website like NF5 Mac. We don't cover every app that ever exists on the App Store, right? There's like huge no. categories of applications that will never get coverage on 9to5Mac. Just because you're in the App Store doesn't mean you're relevant to, to the website. I make my own apps, right? Bingo Machine, there's an app that generates bingo numbers for a, playing a you know, <laughs> game in, like, with family or friends or whatever. 9to5Mac has no interest in covering Bingo Machine app updates, right? Like, yeah. I can send a Bingo Machine email to 9to5Mac every day of the year. No one would ever care and they should never post it because it doesn't make any sense. You've got to be relevant to the website and when at least when i was you know not connected to news outlets or anything i would if i had an app that was more targeted towards the media that i was interested in like the journalists that i knew or people that were online then you can more like isolately target them like at them on twitter when i was originally originally doing this i would just like generate um promo codes in the app store and just at them to people so like i make a promo code and then on Twitter, I like I you know this is when I had less than five hundred followers, right? I wasn't like a big name or anything. I would just say I've made this app that does this. Please try it out. Here's a promo code. And you know what? Probably I've probably sent about a hundred promo codes, and maybe five of them led to any conversion at all in terms of press attention. But the promo codes didn't really cost me anything. Nowadays, that tactic doesn't work very well because there are bots that just scrape social media for promo codes, so they never actually work. But even if you get the bot, even if you get a bot steal your promo code, if the person that you've sent it to is like interested in it, they might then reply being like, "Hey, this promo code doesn't work. Can you give me another one?" So like, you just kind of have to be very upfront and direct, and mm-hmm. then a lot of luck involved as well. Because the simple matter is, if you're a tech website, if you're any website covering apps, you're getting so many emails and pitches every every single day that don't be disheartened if you never get anyone reply to you. Just send another email in a month's time. That's the best. That's your best chance. I also think from our end, it's helpful or more incentivizing if in your initial email, maybe you include five or six promo codes that we can pass along to readers. Mm -hmm. That always incentivizes us to cover it more. And in the post, if somebody goes to redeem the promo code and it's expired, they might just go ahead and check out the app on their own accord because they thought it was interesting. Yeah. And if if it's an app, which is more common than ever these days, where like it doesn't really do anything until you've like made an account and used it for a while... Like, so it's something that I couldn't just download from the App Store and then test out in five minutes and work out if it's good or not. Mm-hmm. You really need to include like a video of like, this is a you this is like a, you know, screen recording of the app after it's been set up for a time. So for instance, a fitness app, right? Of course, you can still give a link yeah. to the App Store on a test flight and stuff. But practically speaking, I need to be able to filter my email in minutes, not days, right? So if someone sends me a pitch for like a cool new fitness tracking app, you kind of need to show me what it's like after a month of using it, right? Because... I'm not going to be able to use every single fitness app that gets comes to my email and then find out if it's good or not, right? I want to post the website, good stuff, and I have to filter out rubbish. And if I can't work out if your thing's good or bad, it, it's just not going to get to the good pile. So think about it from that perspective as well. Like, yeah, you might be sending someone a promo code, but if you install the app and then it requires work for a long time to actually do anything, uh, maybe try and think of a different way to do it. I know some developers like make accounts 
that are like demo accounts that are just pre-filled and pre-set up with information. And so in their pitch emails, they're like, okay, here's the link. And you can obviously make your own account and play about with it. But if you just want to get a sense of it going on, enter, you know, abc at g.com and the password's test. And then you can see a test account and get the, get the, get the hang of what's going on here. Make onboarding as easy as possible for press, just as you try and make onboarding as easy as possible for actual customers. Heidi Coley asks, what is your opinion on the studio display? Could or should Apple create a cheaper display? The studio display, I think, is a fantastic product, and it's just priced too high. Yep. I don't think the solution for Apple is to make a cheaper version of the studio display, but rather just lower the price of the current studio display, then maybe slot in a more expensive model somewhere in between it and the Pro Display XDR. Yeah, I think the studio display is good, but ultimately what you're getting is a panel from eight years ago that appeared in the 5K or IMAX, right? Yeah. Like it's basically identical apart from it's slightly brighter. These days I feel, yeah, you need um, 120 hertz refresh rate or mini LED backlighting. So you get the contrast zones, the dimming zones. The studio display has neither of those things. And so I think for the price they charge for it, it's too expensive. It should probably be $1,000, which is still expensive in the world of displays, right? But for an Apple display, that's more where it should line up. I think the 1600 price is a bit, is asking too much. And then if you want design-wise comment, I think the bezels are too big. Yeah, I don't I understand why that. the bezels in the studio display are that big. They're bigger than the XDR. Yeah, why? What I want is Apple to make like a, take the laptops, right? The MacBook Pro. Mm -hmm. Look how thin the bezels are on that thing. And it supports ProMotion, and it's got mini LED backlight behind it. It's a thin and small thing. Just make that 27 inches and sell that. If that was $16.99, I'd be way more uh, up on the studio display because it'd yeah. be way more attractive and support high refresh rate and everything. Um, so, yeah, that's what I'm kind of hoping they go for a, a next-generation external display. But, but, I mean, as it stands right now, even the Pro Display XDR doesn't support, like, high refresh rate or anything. So, uh, Apple's commitment to the display market is lacking, fleeting, yeah. right? Like they'll do one update, then they'll leave it for five years before they do something else. So they, it was good that they started offering a studio display in 21, was it 21, 22? One of the two. Um, yeah, I don't remember. But, yeah, but I wasn't particularly swayed by it. So I don't have one. And finally, Nikolaj asks specifically to me, how are you liking being a part of Happy Hour now since you've joined permanently? Mayo, we were talking about this, I think, last week. It's been like over six months since I joined permanently, which feels crazy. It does not feel like it's been that long. And before I joined permanently in June, we'd done like some one-offs, just me and you. So we had some practice. But since joining for good, I think at first it was highly intimidating. In my 10 years at 9to5Mac, joining a podcast that had a history of like 500 plus episodes <laughs> probably the most intimidating thing that i've done but since then like over the intervening six months i've come to really really enjoy it and it's a nice thing to do every week it's my personality is like i'm the type of person who's a big fan of like a rigid like consistency having a schedule where i do the same thing you know every thursday me and mayo sit down at 8 a.m my time to record happy hour like I can plan around that. I know that's always going to happen. And it's the same thing with like nine to five Mac daily where I know every day I got to record this podcast and it gives me that consistency and that schedule that like my mind craves to function properly. Taking over happy hour was intimidating too, because it's so different than nine to five Mac daily where daily is mostly scripted and it's just me talking into a microphone. Happy hour is an open-ended discussion podcast and that's talking like this, talking just open-ended for an hour, 90 minutes, two hours every week. It takes practice to be good at. Yeah. And as like an introverted person in general, it took me a while to get going, but I think we've developed a good a good back and forth. Yeah, yeah. It's not the hardest job you can have in the world, not by oh, long not mile, at all, right? No. Exactly. But it's harder than you think. And I was pretty bad at it when i started 500 episodes ago and i still think there's many places where i could be way better but i think the audience have liked it i think people have accepted the transition and i'm happy i, I love doing it with you and i think it's been reproductive and there's some stuff that 
would never come around like you know um you got you you got the hands-on with the vision pro right if it was still mm-hmm. me and zach doing it we might not have had that you know direct perspective on the podcast itself so uh, there's there's huge uh, pros too and i think we've been getting better and better and better and you're you've been editing the show right when in the first couple of yeah. weeks there was a lot of um chemistry issues just in terms of knowing when someone else has stopped talking so we'd have like crosstalk issues and you know there's this there's this like natural rhythm that you develop and now we're what 30 episodes clear about that yeah something like that i think we're doing pretty good (laughs) i think so and mayo has been very supportive in the transition and seems the listeners have to i like the feedback that we get and yeah it's it's crazy that we've come to the end of 2023 and this was not on my list of things that I thought would happen this year, but I'm glad that the opportunity arose. And you can look forward to another 52 episodes in 2024. Indeed. For this episode, though, I think that's everything. Next week, we'll have our 2023 Apple year in review, covering everything and all the product lines that Apple announced in the year. Then we're back in 2024 for your regularly scheduled news program. In the meantime, you can find us on Apple Podcasts where you can leave a rating and a review, which is super helpful. And maybe it's a fun way to mark the end of my first year as a host is to go leave us a positive rating and review. You can also find an ad-free version of the show for $5 a month or $50 a year. Send us feedback, happyhour at 9to5mac.com. And I am mostly on threads nowadays at Chance H. Miller. And Mayo, what about you? Yep, threads is good. BZA Mayo. All right. Thanks, Mayo. Bye-bye.